0: You are listening to a message that was given at Living Word Chapel, Oracle, Arizona. It is our hope and prayer that God will use this message to speak to you and enrich your life. For more information, visit lwcoracle.org. What an honor to be here with you this morning. What a privilege. I'm humbled for sure. And I hope you can see me (laughs) above the table and the laptop. (laughs) You can hear me, and that's what counts. (laughs) Well, let's get straight into the message. Our text this morning is from the book of Jude, chapter 1, and verses 1 through 4. So let's read the text. It says, Jude a servant of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that, once, that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. So here we have this passage written by a brother of the Lord Jesus. And he's wanting to write to the church about the wonders of our salvation, but instead has an urgent message to communicate. And this urgency is content for the faith. Jude is compelled to write to the saints the word "content means to struggle or to argue on behalf of our faith. So Judas is entreating the church to fight for our faith, to fight for the truth. So as we continue the series on our path to maturity, the theme this morning is the important role that apologetics plays in our growth and maturity in Christ. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we want to thank you so much for the privilege of knowing you, Lord. And we know you through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us your precious truth, for entrusting your truth to your church. And Father, this truth lights our path and lights our way. And we just pray, Father, that our hearts would be attentive to you and that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts, open our eyes, Lord, open our ears to hear your words. And Father, we just pray that your kingdom will grow and you receive glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. So I have four points um, this morning, so let's dive straight into point number one. Point number one is... Apologetics can help you sort out your worldview, But let's start with definitions. What is Christian apologetics? The concept of apologetics is found actually in 1 Peter 3.15. So let's go to that text, reading from the NIV. And it says, "...but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord." always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So the Apostle Peter says here to always be prepared to give an answer. Now, the Greek word for the phrase give an answer is the word apologia. So now you see where apologetics comes from is the Greek word apologia, which means to give an answer. And the definition um, from the Greek, from the Strong's Concordance, is a verbal defense, speech in defense, a reasoned statement or argument. So always be prepared to give an answer requires preparation. Just as, say, a defense attorney prepares a a case on behalf of his client, and he researches, he formulates this case, and then he can stand boldly in front of prosecutors and accusers. And with preparation and strength, he's able to defend his client. So let me ask you this morning, do you have a case for faith formulated? Let me be honest with you. I didn't always. So, apologetics is the formulation of this defense, articulating reasonable arguments for the Christian faith and arguments that can stand firm against the waves of a secular worldview. Now, there are three basic core propositions that apologetics addresses. The first one is God exists. The second one is the Bible is the word of God. And the third is Jesus Christ is the son of God. And upon these three core propositions that you can see here rests so much and depends so much that we believe as a Christian. When you believe these things, the world looks a certain way. That is why it's called a worldview. You see the world from a different perspective. So if you're a Christian, you see the world through the angle or the perspective of a Christian. Now, the polar opposite is the secular worldview that sees life and the world from a different angle. Now, the worldview that we have, if we see the world from the Christian worldview that will impact how we daily live our lives. If we believe something, it's going to reflect in the way that we live. Now, Dr. Doug Guyvet, author and professor of philosophy at Biola University, explains it best. So let's hear what Dr. Guyvet says. He says, if you believe such a thing as the existence of God... If you believe that he has created the universe and he transcends the universe and yet is actively involved and takes an interest in human history, producing a remedy for the human predicament, then that will make a difference to the way you live your life. It becomes an orientation for the way you organize your life. Decisions you make, choices you make, priorities in your life, How you spend your time, who your friends are, marriage partner, vocation. All of these things are informed by your worldview. So as you study and you prepare your case for faith, this will help you sort out your worldview. Now growing up, I really had never heard any rational arguments for the faith. And I remember wrestling with doubts growing up. Christians around me would tell me what to believe, but I wrestled with those uh, things in my heart. But I was discouraged really to doubt, and there was a stigma of shame to raise up questions growing up. But then in high school, one of the required courses that I was uh, uh, supposed to take was philosophy. And wouldn't you know it, my teacher was an atheist. So the content of the material in in the course um, was definitely seen from a different perspective, from the atheist worldview. And my teacher seemed very sure that Christianity was simply a blind, emotional, irrational faith. And Christians were just simple-minded and gullible. Well, because my belief wasn't deeply rooted and I didn't have the resources to really sort out what I believed rationally. Whenever later on in my life, the winds and storms of life came, my faith in God shattered I really had a crisis of faith. And there was a disconnection between what I believed in my head and what I believed in my heart. There was really a dissociation or disconnection. With my heart, I wanted to follow God, but the questions and doubt in my head were unavoidable. But God was patient with me, that's for sure although it seemed that I had to circle around the desert for 40 years, (laughs) I finally found the peace and the rest in my heart and in my mind because God really took me by the hand and guided my journey back to him. So this leads us to point number two, that is, your belief system can be negatively influenced by a non-Christian worldview. So, living in this postmodern culture can influence your worldview, your perspective. And as Christians, we're really swimming upstream. Look at this image going against the flow. See the Christian fish? They're the tiny white one going against barracudas and piranhas and sharks. Oh my! But doesn't it really describe our current reality? Swimming upstream. Our secular culture constantly bombards us with their view of the world, their view of reality, and their view of truth. But their relativistic, naturalistic, humanistic worldview fails. Fails to answer the deep questions about meaning, value, and purpose. And our culture has, as a whole, lost the Christian influence and the Christian perspective. Yet, the kingdom of God is the only one that has the solution to the human dilemma. We are the only ones that have the answer to the predicament of humans. However, preparing a case for our faith might be a struggle if there is unresolved doubt in your heart and in your mind. Don't get excited. I'm going through my points fast, but point number three is the longest. (laughs) Point number three is apologetics plays an important role in my path towards maturity. As we study... As we research, as we seek God, as we we read God's word, we grow in the knowledge of God. We grow in the knowledge of Christ. We grow in grace. We grow in faith. Ultimately, we grow. And sometimes we have to contend for our own faith. That's what I had to do. It wasn't so much to contend for the faith outside of myself to others at that point in my life, but I had to contend to establish my own faith. So let's talk about doubt. We all have doubts. Bobby Conway, host of the One Minute Apologist show, and you can see that on on YouTube most of the time, wrote in his book Doubting Towards Faith, doubt is not a Christian problem. It's a human problem. Because we're finite beings. We don't have all the answers. So having doubts and questions is not unnatural. However, doubt never stays put. Doubt is always going somewhere. So the question is, are you going to follow your doubt towards belief and faith? Or are you going to Follow your your doubt towards unbelief. Now, doubt is a complicated issue, and it has many facets. But two prominent facets of doubt are intellectual doubt and emotional doubt. So let's... Talk about these two types of doubts. First, intellectual doubt. It's a doubt of the head, of the reason. It's a sincere intellectual question that is seeking facts and information. And we have the example of Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples. The resurrected Christ had appeared to a group of disciples, but at that time, Thomas was was not with them. So the disciples were filled with joy. Jesus was risen. So they communicated to Thomas, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas did not accept this eyewitness account and demanded evidence. And we see this account in John 20, verse 25. He said, unless I see the marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So this was more than doubt. He completely rejected the resurrection account. But a week later, the resurrected Jesus again appeared to the disciples. And this time, Thomas was with them. So Jesus directed to Thomas and said, come here. Has your mom ever done that to you? Come here. And he said, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. So Jesus came personally to resolve Thomas' question with real palpable evidence. And then he encouraged belief. At the sight of this evidence, Thomas said, My Lord and my God. It was clear in that moment. And Thomas actually acknowledged Jesus as God. The Greek word here for God is, in this verse, is theos, the one true God. So Thomas turned his unbelief into belief. And church tradition indicates that years later he became a missionary all the way to India. And he died as a martyr for his faith, for his belief. See, our Christian faith is not a blind faith. God has given us enough evidence to assure us that our faith in him is rational and true. And although our faith is not a blind faith, sometimes we walk through faith blindly, not giving a careful uh, um, assessment of what we believe. And then we have emotional doubt. That's a doubt of the heart. It tugs at our heart to seek explanations and reasons for things that are hard to reconcile. This type of doubt leads us to ask, why? Why, God? Why? It leads us to ask, where are you, Lord? What is the purpose of this? What is the purpose in this? An example of this is John the Baptist. He was thrown in jail for his belief and for the stand he had made upon God's principles. And in the dark place of solitude and fear, he needed reassurance that he wasn't dying in vain. So he sent some of his disciples to Jesus saying, reading from Luke 7.20, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? This is John the Baptist. The one who had leaped in his mother's womb at the sight of Mary's greeting. This is John the Baptist, the one who had been prophesied about that he was going to prepare the way of the Lord. And then exclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world when he saw Jesus. And then he's the one that baptized and saw the heavens open. But he needed comfort in his time of suffering, just like we sometimes do also. Continuing the account in Luke 7 says, At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases sicknesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind so he replied to the messengers go back and report to john what you have seen and heard the blind receive sight the lame walk those who have leprosy are cleansed the deaf hear the dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor So again, Jesus pointed to evidence to answer the question. And see the physical evidence of what was happening? It was actually prophesied by the prophet Isaiah about the ministry of the Messiah. And you can find this prophetic word in the chapter 61 of Isaiah that was written about 720 years before Christ. And John the Baptist knew this full well. Remember, his father was a Levite priest. So he was trained in the sacred writings. So John the Baptist knew it. So Jesus is saying, look at the evidence. Demonstrating the fulfillment of prophecy and saying, yes, I am the one. You're waiting for. I am the one who has come. I am the Messiah. I am. And no, John the Baptist, you are not dying in vain. See, these two instances of doubt, Jesus responded with palpable evidence. So is there in reasonable evidence? Is there enough evidence for our Christian faith? Is there evidence for the three main elements that God exists, that the Bible is the Word of God, and that Jesus is the resurrected Son of God? And the answer is a resounding yes. Yes, there is. However, our culture has been swayed by an anti-God agenda that was influenced by the philosophical climate and philosophical writings of the past two centuries arrogantly the world argues that they have facts they have reasons they have evidence and by contrast christianity is unreasonable blind and irrational maybe even a fairy tale but in the last decades there's been a revival of christian reason that is sweeping throughout the world in the movement of apologetics and there are Entire academic programs taught by scholars in many universities that teach these arguments for the faith. So see, the accumulation of these arguments give us a solid case for reasonably believing that our Christian faith is true. And that the Christian worldview best explains our reality. I'm just gonna mention a few of these this morning because they're so numerous and they're so countless. Uh, but you know, I definitely encourage you to seek and search um, more on this subject. So the first question: does God exist? And um, this one I'm gonna answer with um, philosophical argument. Christian philosophers, scholars, theologians have formulated philosophical arguments that follow the rules of logic. And in these philosophical arguments, they are contending for the existence of God, a spaceless, timeless, intelligent, immaterial, powerful, personal, moral being. And philosopher uh, Dr. William Lane Craig, founder of the m- ministry that's called Reasonable Faith, has debated countless atheists and argues very eloquently and logically for the existence of God. So we're going to watch an animated uh, video here in just a uh, next seconds, if you can please cue that up. And we're going to hear his cosmo- cosmological argument.
1: Does God exist? Or is the material universe all that is, or ever was, or ever will be? One approach to answering this question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin, or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. And that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists Arvind Bord, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vilenkin prove that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused and unimaginably powerful, much like God. The cosmological argument shows that in fact it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist.
0: Isn't that great? (laughs) And just like this logical argument, there are others that have been formulated as well to be able to logically debate and and stand for the truth that our faith in God is reasonable. Now, what about is the New Testament a reliable document? former, Former atheist Lee Strobel, in his book A Case for a Creator, quotes several scholars and states that there is more reliable information for the New Testament than for any other historical document. So let me ask you, have you ever been made to question the writings of Plato or Socrates or Aristotle? No, right? But somehow the worldview, the secular worldview, makes us question the reliability of the New Testament. So let's see how these writings stack up. And we have a a chart here uh, to show you of manuscript evidence for ancient writings. And so we're going to just compare Homer, Plato, Tacitus, which was a Roman uh, historian, and the New Testament. So Homer wrote the Iliad around 900 B.C. That's not exact the date. But the earliest copy that we have was in 400 B.C. So from the time that... Homer wrote to the earliest copy that we have is a span of 500 years. And how many manuscripts do we have of Homer? 643. And actually, of secular and other ancient writings, this is the writing that has the most manuscripts. The second one is Plato. He wrote also, we're not too sure, between 429 uh, to 647 B.C. But the earliest copy that we have of Plato is 900 A.D., 1,000 years after the birth of Jesus. So there's a time span of 1,200 years between the writing and the earliest copy. How many manuscripts do we have of Plato? Ten. Next one is Tacitus. Now, he's a Roman historian, and he wrote in A.D. 100. The earliest copy that we have is A.D. 1100, so a time span of 1,000 years. How many manuscripts we have? 20. Now, let's see the New Testament. It was written A.D. 40, just a few years after the resurrection of Christ. And it was completed more or less A.D. 100. We believe the book of Revelation was finished probably in 96 A.D. So we're rounding here from 40 A.D. to 100 A.D. The earliest copy we have is 125 A.D. Just 25 to 50 years from when it was written to the earliest copy. So you can see that it's a true and faithful document How many copies do we have? 24,000. So you can see how reliable our documents are. And we can be assured that up to 99.5% of accuracy, we can read the same series of documents in the New Testament today than what the early church had. And that 0.5%... Half a percent doesn't jeopardize any of the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And the variances can actually be clarified elsewhere. So we can be very certain that the Bible in truth is the word of God. Now, was Jesus a real person in history? Was he the son of God? Dr. Gary Habermas, author, professor of philosophy, and expert in the re- resurrection of Christ explains this. He says, We have early material about 17 non-Christian sources, historical documents outside of the New Testament. If you put them end to end, we know more than 60 facts from the life of Jesus, birth, teachings, disciples, death, resurrection, the deity of Christ, And all of this is reported without you ever opening up the pages of the New Testament. So these outside sources of the New Testament confirm that Jesus was in in fact a true person in history. Brothers and sisters, we have the genuine article. We have the real thing. Remember the Coke commercial back in the 70s? What the world wants today is the real thing. Well, the world wanted the real thing back in the 70s. And guess what? The world wants the real thing today. And our, oh, our faith is the only one that is testable. Our faith is the only one that is based on history and on, and our, on evidence. And what is the reason for our hope? That the second person of the Godhead came in the flesh. The creator of the universe, the Bible says that all things were created by him and for him and through him. He stepped into time. His feet touched our dust. His lungs breathed. Our heir. And he came to give our life lo- to give his life for us. He took our place in death so that we could be free from that which stood between us and God, that is sin. And in conquering death by his resurrection, he gives us life eternal so that we can be with him for all eternity. That is the gospel. So point number four, apologetics empowers our path to maturity. Because as we prepare our own case for faith, our spiritual life is brought back into strength. Because we dive into the worldview which says if Christianity is true, then everything else is false. Ultimately, there are only two options. Either God is or he isn't. My problem was that I wanted to live in the middle. And I wanted the benefits of eternity, of heaven, and other peace and so forth of the Christian. But I was flirting with a secular worldview. But that middle ground is a hopeless, empty place. But now it's time for us to go to war on behalf of our culture. Can we change everything that's wrong with our culture? Probably not. But can we make an impact to the person that's in front of us? The answer is yes, we certainly can. So I have prepared some action steps to put into practice these steps to our path to maturity. Step number one is resolve your doubt. Seek, study. Humbly accept mentorship. Now, resolving your doubt doesn't necessarily mean that you will get the answers to every single detail of every single question that you have. But resolving means that you choose to believe. You choose God. You choose the Christian worldview. Even when there's a conflict in our soul, bring those questions to the Lord today. He is near us. He is close to us. You can do this right now, here today. Or you can do it in the privacy of a quiet time. Pour out your heart. Let out the doubts and the questions you have. And see how his faithfulness will take you by the hand. Just like he did with me. So today, take the intentional initiative. To formulate the reason for your belief in God, in the scriptures, and in Christ as a resurrected son of God. And step number two is intentionally choose what you believe. Believing truth is a choice. You make the decision. In fact, you are responsible for what you believe. Dr. Neil Anderson, founder of Freedom in Christ Ministries, one of my personal heroes, says the following, God's will for us is that we would live responsibly today and trust him for tomorrow. Are we people of little faith? Or do we really believe that the fruit of the spirit will satisfy us more than earthly possessions? Do we really believe that if we hunger and thirst after righteousness, we shall be satisfied? Do we really believe that if we seek to establish God's kingdom, God will supply all our needs according to his riches and glory? If we do, then we will seek his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto us. And the third action step is wake up. Awaken to what is at stake. Commit yourself 100% to give yourself to the Lord and to the Christian worldview. No matter the cost. Because guess what? It might cost you. It might cost you. My dad used to say, The Christian life is not hard. It's impossible. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So do the hard work of faith. Establish the Christian worldview in your life and live that distinct Christian life that will communicate to those around you the truth of the gospel, the only hope us. Are you ready to believe in God again? Are you ready to contend for the faith and expect God to move in your life and the life of the church? I know I am. Let's pray. And agree with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for creating us and for loving us. Thank you that you are not a God who hides but are willing to reveal yourself to us. I pray that you will enable us by your spirit to give ourselves wholeheartedly to you. Lead us and guide us into your truth so that our witness will be effective to bring many into your eternal kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a message from Living Word Chapel. We hope that you've been blessed by it. Make sure you check out lwcoracle.org for more information.